This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. She woke up every night for over a week at exactly 3 a.m. She said her bedroom door would unlock, the hall light would turn on, and a man dressed in a white shirt and dark slacks would stand at the foot of the bed with his hands on his hips, just staring at her or gazing behind her. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Dark House. I'm Hadley Mendelson. And I'm Melissa Fiorentino. We're your hosts. If you're new here, in each episode, we dig into the backstory of a house that's allegedly haunted or notorious for some reason or another. We talk about who lived there, who died there, and all the events that led to its eventual infamy. And today, I'm taking us all to San Antonio, Texas. If you've never been, let me paint you a quick picture. The city has a river running through it which is bordered by walking paths, stone bridges, lush greenery, historic lore. Historic lore. Uh-huh. And open-air theaters, Tex-Mex food, all the charming works. It's a great backdrop for a ghost story, if I do say so myself. Can you tell I'm in a really good mood today because it's almost Halloween? I can. <laughs> Tis the season to be jolly. Anyway, about a 10-minute drive northeast of the Alamo is the neighborhood of the Salado Valley, where today's house is, Victoria's Black Swan Inn property has gone through a ton of name changes over the years, and today's iteration is Victoria's Black Swan Inn, which we'll call the Black Swan or just the Inn for this episode. But one thing I want to clarify at the jump is that despite its name, it's not actually an inn in a traditional bed and breakfast way because the current owner, Joanne Rivera, lives in the main residence on the sweeping grounds with her family. Okay, thank you for clarifying that because I 100% thought this was a functional (laughs) inn, you know, like Lorelai's Dragonfly Inn in Gilmore Girls. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No Michelle here at the front desk. It's more of a venue that people can book for weddings, memorials, and special events, but there are also a few small businesses operating on the property, and they also partner with a local ghost touring business because according to the inn's website, it's infested with ghosts. Which you know we love to hear. (laughs) And this house was actually recommended to us by a listener who runs a shop at the inn. Right. She DM'd us about it and we Googled Victoria's Black Swan Inn. And one of the first articles that comes up is by Camille Sowers from My San Antonio. It's an interview with Joanne talking about all the ghost sightings there, including one of the most disturbing stories that I've ever heard. No, literally, it's hands down one of the creepiest stories we've ever heard. And you know, we hear a lot of them. Exactly. So that should tell you something. Kind of Henry James turn of the screw vibes. And let's just say that it may have ruined the name Dimitri for me, except if you're listening and your name is Dimitri, I'm sure you're great. So after reading the article, we knew we had to research this house immediately. There were just way too many ghost stories for us to hold off until next season. And Joanne knows of at least eight ghostly personalities haunting the property. There are a number of regulars, so to speak, aka apparitions that people report seeing most often. And the website connects those spirits with real people who occupied the property over the years. So we're going to go over all the ghost stories one by one. After each one, we'll then dive into the real history of the region, the house, and those occupants associated with each ghost. So we can learn 
who these supposed spirits were when they were still alive and what was going on with the property while they were there. And of course, why they might still be lingering around enough for paranormal investigators to call the NA portal to hell. That's just so (laughs) ominous. Dramatic. From my quick Google search, it sounded like there were a lot of owners. So I imagine the story is going to have a lot of twists and turns. Is that right? Indeed, it will. I also noticed a pattern of mysterious tragedies that kept happening in the neighborhood throughout the property's existence. So I'll mention those as we go too. Hmm. But we'll get started with a description of the property today so you have a visual. And then we'll kick off with the first ghost story and go over some early Texas history, including a bloody battle that happened right where Victoria's Black Swan Inn sits today. Before we dive in, just a heads up that there are several mentions of suicide in this episode, so please listen with caution. Okay, with that, let's get into it. Let's do it. The house, 1006 Holbrook, is right off Holbrook Road, which runs north to south, parallel to Salado Creek, a tributary of the San Antonio River that flows just west of the house. And as you'll hear, it's got quite the heavy flow. (laughs) Holbrook runs perpendicular to a few thoroughways. To the north is Eisenhower Road, and then a bit north of that is Austin Road. On the other side of the creek, so west towards the city, is a big military base called Fort Sam Houston. And then the high-end neighborhoods of Oak Park, Terrell Heights, Alamo Heights, and Terrell Hills, not to be confused with East Terrell Hills where the inn is. Okay. And East Trail Hills is a development right to the east of the property, and the houses there are boxier and closer together than you would expect, surrounding this stately old home, which is over 7,000 square feet and sits on 27 acres. Mm, That's pretty big. And originally it was over 200 acres, so those newer homes were built once some of the acreage was sold off. And there are also several other buildings on the property, like a carriage house, a grain silo, and an old barn. If you're looking at it from a bird's eye view, you'd see that it's basically a whole compound with a bunch of scattered small buildings. There's also a big parking lot that I believe is used for flea markets and stuff. And then there's a really long driveway that separates the big paved lot and the rest of the property. Okay. And the inn is one of the only properties for a long stretch on the road. Speaking of which, you cannot see the house from the main road. You can only see a small entrance that's marked, but it's not a gate. So there's not much security. Oh no. And there's a big grassy lawn on a slightly sloped hill. You also can see a gazebo topped by a bell tower that Mm. gives it a peaceful, yet simultaneously unsettling feeling, in my opinion. There's (laughs) also a small fake graveyard set up. I don't know if it's a permanent installation or not, but it's on the lawn between the house and the gazebo. And there's also an antique horse-drawn carriage. Huh, interesting. And in an episode featuring the inn on the Travel Channel show, Portal to Hell, One of the hosts is walking up the driveway and passes by a tree with a bunch of animal skull ornaments on it, as well as rusted over abandoned Hmm. cars. And he says, this looks like the set of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So just do with that what you will. I mean, that's a pretty clear visual. Mm -hmm. So, (laughs) And the driveway gradually climbs up to the top of the hill to the house and it drops off at the left wing. Okay. A curving staircase winds up from the driveway on the grass to the front porch, which faces Holbrook Road. It's oriented on sort of a diagonal with the wings of the house sticking out at the opposite corners Hmm. instead of extensions from the middle. It's all tucked under massive old oak trees, almost obscured by them. And the house is painted white, but the paint is chipping, which I think looks intentional. And it isn't all that surprising since Joanne loves antiques and really leans into the paranormal history of everything. Mm, Yeah. Even though it looks worn, the house is stately and symmetrical. I'd say the classical elements give it a very grand appearance 
And it does look kind of like the Lucy murder house, just bigger. I mean, we know that was a really popular look in the South, so. Right. So the main middle portion of 1006 Holbrook has a full height porch, meaning it's two levels, and both are covered overhead. There are also Art Nouveau pendant lights hung from the ceilings, and the porch is even more zhuzhed up by Corinthian crowning columns. It's very Greek revival. The porches were designed to be peaceful places to hang in the fresh air and enjoy the Gulf breeze out of the direct sun while maybe hanging out on a rocking chair. Now I'm just picturing the movie The Skeleton Key with Kate Hudson. I feel like I've brought it up before, but now I can't remember. See, I'm thinking of something I've also definitely brought up before. Sot Pen's Hundred and Old Miss Coldfield from Absalom, Absalom by William Faulkner. And I'm not expecting you to resonate with that reference, Alyssa, but hopefully somebody else does. I know you've brought up William Faulkner. I'll be sending you some quotes later and you're going to have to block me. (laughs) And design-wise, the house is neoclassical, which makes sense since it was built in 1902 when the style was really popular. According to a 1993 article, the main house is four floors, including a basement and an attic. And if you're counting all the buildings, there's somewhere around 26 rooms total. Most of them are in the main residence that I've been describing. Hmm. It's possible that the house was much smaller when it was first built, and that the verandas and columns and wings on either side of the home were added later when the home changed ownership. Mm, Yeah, could be. There are elaborate moldings that frame the front windows, many of which are French doors, That some of them are glass. The front doors look narrow and antique, and they open into a living room that's decorated with Victorian-era furnishings. There are tons of candles scattered around the room. Seance vibes. Oh, did you hear that crack of thunder? No, (laughs) I didn't. That was, if anyone listening heard it, it was not, that was not sound design. That was ghost telling me to shut up. Okay. (laughs) And there's also a big crystal chandelier with dead rose petals attached to the little crystals just hanging from it. So Hmm. very DIY. I've heard of dried flowers for decoration before, but never hanging individual dried petals. That's interesting. Creative take. And the ceilings are not as high as I would have expected, but the pretty moldings dress them up. And while the main living room is open and grand, a lot of the other rooms are more compartmentalized. The separate wings are connected to the main building, but it does look slightly disjointed, hence them being added later. And a lot of the rooms have haunting looking porcelain dolls propped up on shelves. No. Eh, I know. Why? I could fill about an hour's worth of time or more talking about it. In fact, I used to do that in therapy, so we won't go there. I'm sure. As far as the surrounding property, there's also an old barn that predates the house and was built sometime in the second half of the 19th century, back when it was a farm. So it's haunted. Sure is. It has to be. And it's behind the main house, and you can see the old barn from the back porch. Also, even though everything's up a little hill, the house is in a major flood zone thanks to the nearby creek. When it rains, the entire road looks like it's underwater. Damn, that's really scary. Mm-hmm. But apparently, it clears out pretty quickly for the most part. Now that you have a sense of the property, let's jump into the ghost stories about the earliest inhabitants of the land before the home was built. <sighs> okay, mm-hmm. I think I'm ready. <laughs> so according to the Inn's website, people have witnessed what resembles a reenactment of a battle between a militia of cowboys and Mexican soldiers. But it almost glitches out like it's clearly not live humans. Hmm. Joanne has also described a heavy energy shift right before a mysterious sensation that feels like getting shot in the head. Oh, this is not off to a good start. Mm -mm. And there have also been sightings of a Confederate soldier hanging out near the gazebo at the front of the property before he just wanders off and turns to mist, I imagine. The sounds of a military bugle have been heard in the front yard, but people can never find the source of it. The website also claims, and this is a quote, 
There have been signs of a sweat lodge where Native Americans performed rituals. An ancient Native American burial ground is thought to be under the house. There have been stories of boys fishing in Salado Creek being chased away by what appears to be Native American ghosts. Some people have said they smell smoke and hear a light drum sound. Okay, but couldn't the smoke be coming from somebody's backyard fire pit, maybe? Very true. It seems like not all natural phenomenon have been eliminated there. But this lore about the inn's early history can be traced all the way back to San Antonio's inception, even before it was founded, actually. And understanding the real history is going to help us better unpack the ghost stories and dispel some of the misinformation. The way that I know that this history lesson is going to be more than I ever learned in school. (laughs) But I'm ready. Here's a very basic Geography 101. San Antonio sits within Bexar County and is a little over a two-hour drive to the Gulf Coast, and that port access has always made it a hub for immigrants. The physical separation between Mexico and Texas has also changed over the years. Social construction, obviously. But today, it's marked by the Rio Grande, which is about a two-hour drive from San Antonio. The city is less than an hour and a half southwest of Austin. And then Dallas is north of Austin. Houston is to the southwest by three-ish hours. So San Antonio is right in the center of the southern part of the state, right where the country shifts from the southeast to the southwest, which looks more like the desert. So it's really straddling those two cultures, a little cowboy straddle, if you will. (laughs) Okay. Today, San Antonio is one of the biggest cities in Texas with over a million people. But in 1860, the population was under 10,000. By the 1940s, it was over 250,000. And then by the 60s, it was almost 600,000. It's also the oldest city in Texas, which is one of the reasons it has so much great character. And ghosts. Yes, that's true. (laughs) It's home to the Alamo, which is only a few miles away from the inn. And to understand the battle that happened on the land where the inn is, I have to first explain the lead up to the Alamo. And if you could also (laughs) explain the Alamo too, that would be appreciated. Happily. Okay, throwing it back to the 1500s, 100 years before the Mayflower even landed in Massachusetts, the Spanish Empire overtook the capital of the Aztec Empire, which is now Mexico City, and then set up New Spain as a colony. Fast forward to the 1600s, and there were French explorers in Texas. So when the Spanish caught wind of that, the king of Spain got competitive and greedy, as kings do, and was like, okay, go get Texas for Spain. So Spain conquered all of current-day Mexico and then also controlled the southwest of current-day United States. France also had a lot of land, mostly along the Mississippi, and then Britain had the East Coast. Before and during that same era, there was a huge variety of indigenous tribes living all across the country. And while it's definitely possible that indigenous people lived where the inn is until the 19th century, I couldn't find any information about a burial ground. And there were no leads about a sweat lodge either. Well, it wouldn't be that out of the question for there to have been a Native American burial ground there if they had lived there. But also, we've talked about this before. I mean, so many ghost stories are informed by local history Mm -hmm. and collective guilt. So... It's not shocking to have this thrown into the mix of the the lore. Exactly. That's a good point. And it doesn't mean that there couldn't be spirits of indigenous people who lived and died near the Salado Creek in general, if not on that exact property. But according to a 1977 Mm -hmm. article promoting the property when one of the owners was turning it into a venue, a team from UT San Antonio found evidence suggesting it was occupied from 5,500 BC to 1,000 AD, which would give it archaeological significance, but that's mostly the prehistoric period until you get to the AD part. And I couldn't corroborate archaeological digs, so I don't know. Still kind of cool, though. 
Anyway, back to the early 1700s, and I'm dramatically oversimplifying for the sake of time. The Spanish arrived in Texas, where they had the indigenous Cahuiltecan people build the first settlement in Texas, which was the compound slash mission we know as the Alamo. The Cahuiltecan felt that they had to build it in exchange for protection against other tribes. So the Alamo functioned as a presidio or fortress, kind of in anticipation of attacks from Apache and Comanche raiders. But it was also comprised of 30 adobe buildings used as workrooms and homes. Okay, so this was before the city of San Antonio was officially established. Well, they were established together, essentially. Okay. Then fast forward to the late 1700s, and the Alamo was secularized and then abandoned. So it had a chapter as a ghost town then, yeah? Yeah. And then another decade passed in the early 1800s when it was used as a fortress again until 1821 when Mexico gained independence from Spain. At that point, indigenous people greatly outnumbered Mexicans in Texas which made the new Mexican government nervous. So they passed a law where any head of household from outside of Mexico could own land in Texas. And removing restrictions attracted mostly white men from southern states to buy property there, who then began to outnumber the indigenous people, which created new problems for the Tejanos, aka the Mexicans, living in Texas. So by the 1830s, Tejanos and white Texans were clashing, and that escalated to militarized revolts, one of which was at the Alamo. And then in 1835, a Mexican general surrendered the Alamo to the Texan army and a small number of the soldiers stayed there. The Mexican troops then attempted to regain it in a siege, during which two American folk heroes, James Bowie and Davy Crockett, died. So when people say, remember the Alamo, they're referring to this specific fight in 1835? Right. And it symbolizes the Texas Revolution. So you can see why it's so central to Texan patriotism, and identity, but also why it's so divisive. Mm. But when the Mexican army left, they burnt down the Alamo fortress wall and most of the buildings. Then in 1836, Mm. Texas gained independence from Mexico as its own country. Wow, okay. For the next five years, it was mostly abandoned, though there were occasionally soldiers on both sides because there were still tons of conflicts going on with Texas struggling to maintain control. And all of that led to a huge battle in 1842 that happened on the land the inn occupies at Salado Creek, which... The fact that it's this hugely important site makes me wonder why this story isn't more famous. Maybe we'll make it famous now. No, totally. That year, over a thousand Mexican soldiers descended on San Antonio, regaining control of the city. And a week later, a militia of about 200 Texans, so they were outnumbered, marched toward the city, landing by Salado Creek. In the book Battles and Men of the Republic of Texas, the author, Arthur Wiley, said, Caldwell marched his camp 13 miles closer to the city along Salado Creek near the Prescott House. Of course it was 13 miles. Of course. Oh gosh, I didn't even think that. And that implies there was a structure somewhere near or on today's property by the time of the battle. (laughs) The leader sent some men to lure the Mexican troops over to the creek. And as that was happening, another troop of 50 Texans was marching to meet up with the Texans at Salado Creek. But they accidentally ran into Mexican soldiers and 36 Texans were killed in what is known as the Dawson Massacre. A mile away, where the Black Swan Inn is, the Texans won. 60 Mexican soldiers were killed, and they were left there to rot. Oh. Uh-huh. I know. Gross inside. War just is not kind, as it turns out. I wonder if the remains were ever buried, but... I assume not. Probably not. And dying like that in a sneak attack and then never having a proper burial or reuniting with your family and also losing what was once your country, aka Mexico, is just a recipe for a haunting. 
Yeah, it reminds me of our conversations in the Winchester episode about mourning at that time period, especially in times Mm -hmm. of war. So the next morning, as the Texan soldiers were leaving the area, they found the bodies of the Texan soldiers from the other group. Mm. And they buried their bodies in shallow graves. So the whole area is basically a makeshift cemetery. (sighs) Okay. At least they buried those bodies. And of course, the soldier-like apparitions people have reported at the inn are likely from these two battles, after which Texas kept its independence as its own country. Okay. So even though these battles are not as famous as the battle at the Alamo, it still sounds like it was pretty significant, especially if it was part of Texas remaining independent. Yeah. And though Texas did want to join the U.S. after, Congress didn't want another pro-slavery state. But eventually, Texas did become a state at the end of the Mexican-American War in 1846. Were we ever not fighting? (laughs) And during that time frame, the Alamo became the Texas headquarters for the U.S. Army. Oh, wow. After two stints as a ghost town, it gets this really big job. Mm -hmm. But Texas was part of the U.S. for fewer than 20 years before it succeeded to join the Confederacy in 1861. So did any other battles take place on the inn's property during the Civil War? No. And... Even though San Antonio has always been an important military city because of the Alamo, being west of the Mississippi meant that Texas was not the center of the bloodiest Civil War battles. Hmm. Okay. And I can't figure out who the Confederate ghost would be, considering that there weren't any fights there, especially because when the Civil War started, one third of the San Antonio population was German. And a lot of them lived in the Salado Valley area, including the occupants who settled the land where the inn is. And that demographic was very anti-slavery. So I find it hard to believe that they'd be marching around their property in Confederate uniforms. Hmm. And that brings me to the next batch of ghost stories associated with the first owners of the land, the Ripsteins, a Swiss-German family. As I mentioned, there's a huge dairy barn out back that's much older than the main house, and it dates back to the mid-1800s when the Ripsteins bought the land. It's allegedly very, very haunted, and the energy doesn't exactly feel positive. Why am I not surprised? There are a few smaller rooms, but the main section is one big open room, kind of like those old schoolhouses. Mm-hmm. There is pretty dappled light coming in and it's vast, but the air looks heavy to me. My lungs feel full just looking at the dust motes floating around. I can smell the must. And the inn's website purports that according to psychics and EVP audio, three spirits haunt the dairy barn. One of the ghosts there hmm. is unidentified, though Joanne thinks it might be the spirit of Sebastian Ripstein, the patriarch of the family. His spirit's voice has been picked up by EVP, and it's been described as deep and guttural, often screaming at people to get out. Oh, here we go. The website describes this spectral presence as a big, burly German man, and he sounds intimidating and territorial, almost like he feels threatened by humans. A psychic said she felt an angry dairy farmer who used to throw people against the walls, too. Like he threw people in his human life where the ghost is throwing Mm. people against the wall. You know, I actually don't know how to interpret it, but I think it's scary either way. Yeah, dangerous either way. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And this ghost haunts more than just the barn. Oh boy. Joanne has sensed him inside the main house, which would have been just open farmland while the Ripsteins were alive. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. 
So let me tell you everything that I found out about the Ripsteins and how they ended up settling the land there to begin with. Okay, yeah. I'm really curious if Sebastian was known to be a nice guy or a grumpy bastard. (laughs) So by the 1840s, a lot of German immigrants came into the New Orleans port and most of the propaganda urged them to continue traveling up the Mississippi to avoid diseases on the Gulf Coast like yellow fever. Okay. Some of them ended up in Texas, and eventually there was a thriving German community where the inn is a few miles northeast of the city. And many of them ran farms and ranches in the Salado Valley from the 1850s until the early 20th century. So the area was very much still the countryside when the Ripsteins got there. And remember how that book mentioned the Prescott House during the Battle of 1842? Yeah. Well, the inn's website called it the Prescott House, too. And I was a dog with a bone trying to track these Prescott (laughs) people down to figure out who they were, because other than that mention, I couldn't find anything. But when I dipped into the 1850 land records, I saw that there was a Prescott family who sold land to someone listed as F. Ackerman, and I recognized the name from my research. So there was a connection. Hmm. In the 1840s, Sebastian Ripstein and his brothers traveled from Switzerland to Texas, where Sebastian married Henrietta Ackerman. So Henrietta Ackerman became Henrietta Ripstein, and her brother was Frederick Ackerman, who the Prescotts must have sold land to in the Salado Valley area. Okay, Nancy Drew. But... Henrietta's brother, Frederick, arrived in Louisiana in 1848 and then settled in San Antonio, making him one of the earliest German pioneers in Texas. Trendsetter. Right. And his obituary said he died at his home on the Salado, four miles from San Antonio, a.k.a. right by the inn. So I think they probably had neighboring farms. Okay, let me see if I got this right. So Frederick arrived first. Mm -hmm. Do we just assume that Henrietta arrived with him in 1848? She would have been a teenager, but yeah. Okay, so then she met Sebastian sometime after. Exactly. So she either met him at the next farm over or they met in San Antonio somewhere. And then they moved to the site of the Black Swan Inn to run their own farm. But Henrietta seems to be the connection to the Prescott name through her brother's property. Still no info on them. Hmm. I am sorry. But since Sebastian was Swiss, I'm wondering if maybe the big burly German man haunting the barn is one of Henrietta's relatives since they all lived and died close by. Or maybe it's not a German man at all and instead is just one of the Mexican soldiers. Did you find any physical descriptions of Sebastian that could help us figure this out? Well, I did see a photo of him and I would not describe him as burly. There's only one photo online and he has dark, puffy hair and a beard. And he doesn't look particularly large to me. If anything, he and Henrietta just look kind of severe. Like resting bitch face? What do you mean severe? Well, I think a photo shoot back then must have just been really expensive and it was a special occasion. So maybe they took it really seriously or were nervous. They kind of deer in headlights vibes with like stiff body language. Oh, you know that iconic photo of the farmer and his wife and the pitchfork? I'll just picture that. Yeah, like a little bit tired. Okay. A little less Americana, a little more European. So by the 1860s, Henrietta and Sebastian settled on about 225 acres at the Salado and built up their farm. She would have been in her late 20s and early 30s by then, and Sebastian was 10 years older. Also, the Grand Mansion standing today was not there yet. The Ripsteins probably lived in a residence inside or above the animals in the barn, which was a common setup in Europe. Listen, it's not for me. I don't understand. (laughs) It's not just about the smells, but if you're living with those animals, they're going to wake you up. Yeah. Uncontrollable noises. Maybe that was the point. Maybe that, like, in order to be able to care for the animals. Don't let me talk about farming anymore. (sighs) I was going to say my farm experience ends and begins with me as a seventh grader watching a sheep 
get born and like watching the mom eat the placenta. Oh, and then later that day, every person in the class had to line up while the farmer squeezed the teat of a sheep into our mouths to try the milk, which is horrible. I mean, no wonder the barn is haunted, though. It's possible that they built a separate stone house, but there are not any records of it. And I also wanted to give you a visual of what their Wild West farming lifestyle was like. And one of Henrietta's nephews who lived at the nearby farm published some writing about his boyhood that is a fascinating glimpse into 1850s and 60s frontier life. I'm going to read you some of it. Okay. My father was exempted from the army on account of owning a flour mill located on the San Antonio River about 16 miles from our farm. Father had to run the mill, so he and mother moved there and left my older brother, 13 years old, and I at the farm to take care of everything. Mm. So his dad, Frederick, couldn't have been a Confederate soldier since he was exempt, nor could his sons since they were too young. But I guess not too young to live alone. Right? What the hell? Run a whole farm by themselves? Okay. So picking back up. When I was a boy, rounding up cattle was a very exciting event. In those days, people did not have their pastures fenced, so the cattle often wandered many miles from home. Licenses permitting one to carry arms were unheard of in my earlier days. Every man always carried his six-shooter buckled to his side. This was necessary on account of there being so many robbers. There were about 40 or more highway robbers scattered over the county in squads of five or six men. My father noticed a suspicious-looking man riding around our place one day, so he told us boys we had better watch the horses. My brother and I went out to guard the horses that night, and just about midnight, the thieves came in different squads. We watched them give signals to each other with the fire of their cigarettes. Hmm. Then we fired at them and scared them away. We hit one of them, but we never knew if we killed him or not. Damn. I know, when I read that, I was like, what? So, there's another potential murder victim on top of all the dead soldiers who presumably decomposed there. I mean, you just don't realize how good you've got it till you hear about the frontier. I know. That was intense. I mean, the part where the robbers are lighting their cigarettes Mm -hmm. to communicate with each other is kind of a fun, fascinating visual. But also, that's really scary. Okay, here's another quick quote. I had another very thrilling experience in 1874. On account of such a dry year, my father decided to move. He didn't know where to go, so he gave me the job of hunting for a suitable place. When I returned home and told father about the wild country, he decided not to move so far away. He bought a ranch close to where stands Wetmore now. Later, he gave me this ranch. Yeah, you better give him this ranch. He's giving him all the hard jobs. I know. So the new ranch that he's referring to was built really close by, just a little further up Holbrook Road. But back then it was called W.W. White Road. Now, back to our girl Henrietta. She and Sebastian ended up having a whopping 11 kids between 1851 and 1874. Most, if not all, of that time frame they had spent at the Slotto Farm. And life expectancy was dodgier. Hmm. Most of the kids made it to adulthood, but one of them passed away at 12, and then another Hmm. died as a little girl. I could not find her exact age. And a baby boy died within hours of being born. Ugh, awful. Yeah, and I didn't find anything, though, that would give us reason to believe that they were buried on the property. And one medium who visited the property mentioned sensing the spirit of a little girl. She felt her low to the ground, as if this entity were struggling to crawl. Hmm. And she said that she felt her dragging a doll alongside her against the floor. (laughs) And Julia and an unnamed girl are the ones who passed away as children, presumably at home. So maybe it's her spirit and she's crawling as if she's sick is what I'm imagining. And the doll, did she have to have a doll? Right, I know. Maybe it was comforting to her because she was scared. I guess. In 1878, Sebastian and Henrietta deeded most of their land to their eldest son, Gustav. 
one year after Gustav married his wife, Anna. And he's been identified by paranormal investigators as another one of the three spirits haunting the dairy barn. They describe his ghost as hmm. a figure with just a head and arms. What? Why? What? I don't know where his Where's lower, his lower body is. I don't know. But what? he's wearing a black tank top and he's been caught on thermal imaging <laughs> cameras looking at people through a window of the main house too, which Ew. feels so invasive to me. <gasps> his spirit is said to be really loud and no one seems to know why he's still lingering there. So let me tell you more about the younger generation of Ripsteins because I think it might help us come up with some ideas. I'm nervous. So some troubling things started happening in the 1880s. One of Sebastian's nephews on the Ripstein side, so Gustav's cousin, was popping up in the local mm -hmm. papers. And an April 1885 report translated from German said, from Salado received the news that a young man named Louis Ripstein had shot himself there. Oh, okay, I did not see that coming. Mm -mm, me neither. I was like typing word by word into Google Translate. And I was like, what? But that sensation Joe felt of being shot in the head would align yeah. with this. So I thought it was worth <sighs> mentioning. And Lewis is not listed in the family trees, which made me feel like the painful loss just wasn't addressed much. That's really sad. But I did find him eventually. And Lewis's dad, Peter, is also listed as a farmer, just like Sebastian. And he did indeed live on an adjacent farm. That same year, 1885, there was a separate mention of Sebastian writing the paper asking them to issue a correction about another incident of poison and suicide. And what they kept referring to as simply the Salado. This is suspicious. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure why, but Gustav and Anna sold about 130 of 220 acres of the land to another German family, the Maulers, in 1887. And it's unclear if or where they moved. So Sebastian was still alive, but he just forked over most of his property to his son. Yes, it's possible that they actually all lived there, but just changed the name on the deed. And I also think it's possible that Henrietta and Sebastian own land nearby, just north of their first ranch, up by Austin Road. Hmm. And depending on which scenario was true, either Anna and Gustav moved up with them or they still lived on another section of the land, part of the acreage they hadn't sold yet. Hmm. Okay. Anyway, by 1891, Gustav and Anna had one son and five daughters. A year after the last child was born in 1892, Gustav was plagued by some kind of mental health issue. Uh-oh. One report from March 17th, 1892 stated, the farmer, Gustav Ripstein, who lives on the Salado, is being investigated by the county court for his sanity. Mm -hmm. Ripstein marred for several minutes and took quinine in such large quantities that his brain was attacked. Wait, okay, what do you think they mean by marred? And what's quine, how do you say quine? quine? Queen, quine? So marred equals impaired or disfigured, depending on the context. And quinine is used to treat malaria. So I'm wondering if his ongoing issues were brought on by maybe a drug side effect when he was actually prescribed something to treat an illness, or if this is describing a suicide attempt. Oh. Mm, it's sad. Or maybe malaria itself could cause delirium but either way it's something seems lost in translation yeah. but also i think we get the gist you know he was obviously something was amiss yeah. and he was struggling true and a translated article from the following day said in the case of g ripstein contradictory testimonies were given one person claimed the man was mentally stable the other denied this mm. they said ripstein was healthy and could not be put under surveillance this is scary, but also, I don't know, two witnesses contradicting each other. Right. And it was interesting Classic. to me how many reports there were. But the last report is from March 28th, 1892. So 10 days after the first one. And it said, the farmer Gustav Ripstein from Salado, who was furtively examined for his mental health, 
but was released again, has now been taken into custody by a number of people since new traces of mental disorders have made themselves felt in him. A number of people? Mm-hmm. What, like he had to be held down? I don't know. It's interesting that this was all published in the paper. You would think this would appear in some type of official medical records and not blasted on the society pages. What's going on? Well, it's just so public for such a private issue. Also, I'm curious if they're vilifying him because this is the general mindset towards anyone with mental illness at this point in time mm-hmm. or because he was actually, you know, specifically violent or something and loud. Yeah, I was thinking maybe it was small town gossip or worse, he was threatening his family with violence. Right. Or it's just a product of how little people understood mental illness back then and right. how they feared and punished those suffering from it. But I kept looking for something official to corroborate the claims or to also see if they were resolved and that it was really just this one little episode. And I eventually came across a statement from Anna made in court in 1917 that really demonstrates how tough these times must have been. She said, my husband, Gustav Ripstein, has been insane since the year 1891. Mm. That's a year before the reports were in the paper. So it must have been going on for a while before they tried to get help. So I'll finish the quote. He is confined in the Southwestern Insane Asylum. In order to secure an income of some kind, I, together with my sisters and brothers, sold some land in San Antonio our father had deeded to us to maintain myself and family as I had no other means whereby I could secure a livelihood. I mean, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, it's especially just thinking about being a single mom in 1917. Six kids, right? Mm-hmm. Well, we can't say if Gustav and Anna were still on the exact property where the inn currently stands by the late 1880s, Anna and the Ripsteins stayed nearby, Hmm. which I think is important to consider if Gustav and Sebastian really are haunting it. Do you know if the dairy farm was successful? Why haunt the barn unless the dairy farm had caused them financial and thus emotional strife? I'm not sure. And also, how do you know that they were still near the farm? Is it that property on Austin Road? In 1896, Sebastian died of pneumonia and then Henrietta followed 10 years later. Both of them, along with many of Henrietta's family members, were listed as dying at their homes on Austin Road, which intersects with what was then W.W. White Road, where the inn is. Hmm. And when Gustav eventually passed away at the Southwestern Insane Asylum, today called San Antonio State Hospital, which is a 20-minute drive away, his funeral was held at their home on Austin Road. I'll also add that the hospital Gustav was sentenced to is reportedly very haunted. Of course. Current patients and staff claim to see terrified apparitions frantically warning them about the abuses that they suffered, trying to help them evade the same cruelties. That is so dark. It makes me think of the voice screaming, get out. Like, was that what he screamed as he was struggling against the Mm. number of people who took him away? I don't know. That's interesting. And even if Gustav didn't die where the inn is, he could be haunting it. It sounds like his time there may have been happier than his later years, at least until 1891, but maybe not. And closing the loop on Anna, she lived until the 1940s and then died in her home, the same one that Gustav's funeral was held in. Hmm. And you said that the new development was built on the surrounding land. If it encompassed their neighboring farms, maybe the newer track homes are haunted. Not to be speculating or anything, but... No, that's so interesting. Oh, I wish... If if you live there, please reach out to us. And speaking of the surrounding area, unrelated to the Ripsteins, but connected to the area surrounding the inn, I noticed a bleak trend. From the 1880s until pretty recently, tons of kids have drowned in the creek. Oh, that's horrible. Mm -hmm. I just sense 
so much stagnant sorrow hovering around the creek ever since the original battle and probably even before that. I think, unfortunately, drowning is more common than we could ever even realize. So that doesn't make me too suspicious, but obviously it plays right into what you just said about the stagnant sorrow. Yeah, it's just more evidence of lives cut short by tragedy within this small radius. Also, in that episode of Portals to Hell about the property, the host said that she felt pressure like she was underwater the moment she stepped inside. But let's circle back to the actual property and move on to the second family's ownership for now. Okay. The Mahler family bought 130 acres from the Ripsteins in 1887. And the patriarch, Henry, is the third spirit rumored to lurk around the dairy barn, though people think he sometimes roams the halls of the main house too. Ugh. Most of the paranormal investigators think Henry sticks around because he loved the farm so much. Even so, yeah. the ghosts haunting the dairy barn don't seem like ones we'd want to summon up because the website describes all three of them as being somewhat aggressive towards women, and they do not seem to care for men either. How do we know that it's not the ghosts of some of those robbers? Because oh. they sounded like real assholes anyways, so that would add up. True. And in the Portals to Hell show, Joanne mentioned that she often hears faint humming early in the morning, and it's distant, but she's heard it enough to think that it's German. I do not like that. I would be straight up running for the hills. The hills are alive with the sound of ominous music. Distant humming? No! So, maybe it's Henrietta or a Mahler. It's Mm. interesting that Henry is said to be an aggressive ghost because I only found nice things about him and his wife, Marie. Hmm. They came to Salado Valley from Iowa by way of Germany, and by the time they moved to the property on W.W. White Road, they already had two sons, Sam and Dan, and then two daughters, Louisa and Sarah. They all ran the ranch as a dairy farm, And by 1901, Hmm. they were successful enough to build at least the framework that eventually became the grand structure standing today. Oh, okay. And life was generally good for the Maulers. And all the kids went on to have their own families. The sons, Sam and Dan, stayed on the farm, but the daughters moved away. And sadly, in 1918, Louisa died in her 30s from an illness. And then in 1919, one of Dan's babies was born prematurely and died only 18 hours after being alive. That's really sad. Yeah. Surprised there weren't more mentions of infant ghost. Yeah. This is like the second baby we heard of. Well, the Inns website does mention a little girl that haunts the property separate from that crawling doll ghost earlier. They say that she likes to play and jump on mattresses. And the website identifies that spirit as Dan's daughter, Sophie, who lived until she was in her 80s. And this is a quote from the website. But it is believed that she haunts the house as an eight-year-old girl singing, laughing, and playing tricks on people. Hmm. And even though she didn't die in the house, her grandparents did. Hmm. Marie Mahler died in 1923, and two years later, Henry passed away at home, which makes me think Henry could actually be the big, burly German man haunting the property. Oh, maybe. And Sam and Dan sold some acreage the year Henry died, but they stayed on what remained of the property, raising their own families there and operating the farm through the 1930s until 1940. So Sophie spent a mostly happy childhood there. I was about to be like, well, I don't really know much about like ghosts choosing what age they appear in. I mean, (laughs) obviously this is all stretch, but I don't know. Yeah. I wonder if the ghost the website identifies as Sophie could be another one of the Ripstein kids who passed away. Yeah, I mean, I guess. Also, speaking of little kid ghosts, the website claims that while setting up for an event in 2015, one of the workers, who was wearing a long, thick dress, felt like they were bitten on the inner thigh by Mm. a toddler-sized entity. What? Yeah. What? Another person was pinched by what they suspected was a little boy ghost. 
That same day, a lot of objects were moved around in the wooded area, kind of as if a mischievous Mm. spirit was trying to get them to play with them. I honestly think it sounds like a pet. Mm. Just the idea of being in a wooded area alone. I'm Mm. sorry, I can't. And I'm not sure if those spirits could be attributed to any maulers because other than the natural deaths, nothing too noteworthy happened on the property while they owned it. That said, there was quite a bit Mm. of nefariousness unfolding along the creek during the years they lived there. For example, in 1928, diggers who were working on a project on the creek suspected a murder happened because they found the remains of a face-down skeleton, indicating that it was probably pretty old. Then in 1930, there's a report that reads, Soldier James Adams is charged with the death of his bride of two weeks on August 9th. Her body was found by other occupants of Fort Sam Houston Military Reservation in an automobile head downward in Salado Creek, east side of the reservation. Which is like two minutes from the end. That's really crazy. Really freaky. And remember how I told you about a string of drownings? Yeah. Even teens said to be good swimmers who went to the creek either to bathe or fish ended up drowning in it. (sighs) That's so heavy. Mm -hmm. This is not like a babbling brook. The current on the creek is pretty strong. I guess so. And none of the ghost stories about people dying right outside the property come up in the ghost stories on the inn's website, probably just because they didn't know about them. But even if they don't haunt it, I just felt like I had to share these. Yeah. All right. In the 1940s, the surrounding neighborhoods were getting more suburban, but this little pocket on the eastern side of the creek further from the city was still quiet and secluded. And in 1941, Dan Mahler sold the property to the next family who would occupy the home on W.W. White Road, now Holbrook Road. But we're going to have to rewind a little so you can learn about them before they were on the property. Okay. The family was a bit unconventional and was comprised of two sisters, Catherine Jolene Holbrook and Blanche Jolene Woods, and Catherine's husband, John Holbrook. They were all middle-aged by the time they moved to San Antonio, and Blanche haunts the inn, mostly in the main residence. The website says psychics have identified the elderly Mrs. Woods ensconced in a small bedroom in the south wing. There, the spirit of a young woman is often spotted seated on the bed. Those lucky enough to catch sight of this ghost liken her to a young Mrs. Woods. She spent several years confined here before she had to be placed in a nursing home, although her final resting place was actually in one of the downstairs bedrooms. It's in that room that many experience an overwhelmingly oppressive heaviness and a feeling of sadness. Jeez. Let me tell you about the Jolene sisters. Okay. They were born and raised in another town in Texas, Wichita Falls. Their dad was born into a prominent New Jersey family and moved out west with the girls' mom. He ended up being the second mayor of Wichita Falls, so the Jolines were local socialites. Oh, cool. And Catherine, the older one, loved Shakespeare and books and went to Princeton before marrying John Holbrook and her little sister, Blanche, married Claude Woods. Hmm. The Holbrooks never had children, and the Woodses only had one daughter in 1912 named Jolene after their maiden name. Blanche's husband, Claude, died in 1935 when Jolene was 23, and Blanche was entering her early middle ages. Hmm. Blanche ended up inheriting quite a bit of real estate and became a prominent businesswoman, so good for her. And though Jolene Woods was raised in Wichita Falls, she moved to San Antonio after her dad died. And then she met and married a San Antonian named Hall Park Street Jr. in 1937. And this would be when the Maulers were still living in the mansion at the inn before the Holbrooks and Woods bought it. Okay. Park Street Jr. is another spirit said to haunt the main house at the inn. Hmm. According to the website, He was found dead in 1965, hung by a necktie with his hands tied behind his back. Mm. And the death was ruled a suicide. A psychic consultant with Sci-Fi's television program Sightings communicated with Hall Park Street Jr. And they believe that 
Park Street Jr. was murdered in a South Wing closet. Mm. So the psychic says he was moved to another location by the murderer to make the death look like a suicide. And the psychic said they thought, quote, Street was killed because of a treasure he still guards in the South Wing. Whoa. That sounds like the treasure we heard of being supposedly buried under the Lucy murder house. Mm, Interesting. But you know what we heard about that just being a legend tied to the Civil War. Yeah. So then the ghost story gets another twist, again, apparently communicated to the psychic by some entity. Others believe that Henry Mahler's ghost drove Park to commit suicide. Apparently, Park Street Jr. is, this is another long quote, the most unnerving spectral presence at the property and has been spotted stalking angrily all over the house. Is he looking for his beloved wife, Jolene, whose spirit still haunts the inn after tragedy struck her at the tender age of 38 when she died of cancer? Dressed in a luxurious white gown with a beaded jeweled medallion in the form of a headband with a feather at the back over her dark hair, this very beautiful female spirit roams the property aimlessly, especially around the gazebo, but Park and Jolene never seem to meet. Hmm. May I add that this is where the venue recommends couples do their nuptials? <laughs> and I guess Henry is thrown in there because he similarly lost his wife and died soon after. But I think back to Gustav again, who had potentially made a suicide attempt and Anna appeared to be afraid of or for him. Mm. Either way, there is quite a bit of speculation and some unconfirmed rumors driving this Jolene Woods and Park Street Jr. legend. Yeah. What could be causing them to never be able to meet? Did they not have a happy marriage? Do you know? Let me just pick up where we left off with the streets true story. Okay. Before they moved into the mansion with their in-laws. So as newlyweds, Jolene and Park Street Jr. lived in Terrell Hills, one of the nicest neighborhoods in the city, just on the other side of the creek. In 1940, Jolene and Park Street Jr. had a daughter, also named Jolene, but everyone oh. called her Jingles. <laughs> I don't mm-hmm. know if I'm going to be able to keep up with these names. I'll try my best to help you. So the same year, Blanche and Catherine's mom, Jolene's grandmother, died, mm-hmm. with Blanche's husband dead, both their parents gone, and in better news, their niece slash daughter, respectively, starting a family in San Antonio, both Blanche and Catherine and Catherine's husband, John, moved to San Antonio, probably for this fresh start and to be close to the budding young family. So this older trio bought the property from the Maulers in 1941. And at some point in the early 1940s, they're presumed to be the ones who added a second level to the home to enlarge it. So you have an image in your head with all three generations of the Jolines, they were really pretty with chestnut hair and light eyes. I was waiting for you to say with flaming locks of auburn hair, ivory skin, and eyes of emerald green. (sighs) Jolene. Love a Dolly reference. Hmm. Anyway, throughout the 40s, Jolene and Park Street Jr. were not living with their relatives on the ranch and farm yet. And all was well until tragedy struck in 1950, only nine years after moving to the Salado property, when Catherine Holbrook passed away at the hospital from cancer at 67, leaving just her sister Blanche and her husband John, alone in the big mansion. That's really sad. Yeah. It's sort of an interesting setup to live with your brother-in-law. Yeah, I agree. Are there any mentions of Catherine's ghost on the website? No, and I was sort of surprised that there wasn't. But despite that loss, some happy stuff was happening for the family. Jolene Street gave birth to her second and last child in 1951, Hall Park Street III. Mm. And the following year in 1952, when Blanche was 65, she transferred ownership of the property to Jolene. And that's when she, Park Street Jr., and their kids, Jingles and Park Street III, moved into the house with Grandma Blanche and then Great Uncle John. Okay. At this point, the land was 82 acres. So it was still massive, huh. but not like the original hundreds of acres. Right. When it was like 200. 
Their land still includes the old barn and stuff, though, right? Yes. And this is likely when the two wings were added, plus all of the frills in the 40s and 50s when they moved there. And nothing too noteworthy was happening in the mid-1950s with them. Blanche was a businesswoman and Jolene was a homemaker, while Park Street Jr. had been practicing law for a couple of decades and ended up being a really prominent attorney working on a few controversial cases, but specializing in condemnation. What exactly is that? It's a lawsuit where the government wants to reclaim private property to use for public benefit. And he always Mm -hmm. represented the people, not the government. All right. Also, while working a case in Los Angeles, he became really close friends with Earl Stanley Gardner. Do you know who that is? Mm, Sounds familiar. He was a best-selling author. Actually, he was the best-selling author of the 20th century at the time of his death in the 70s. And he was an attorney before his career shift to writing Mm. books and TV shows. He's famous for creating The Perry Mason Show which is basically the original SVU. That I've heard of. So the fact that he and Park Street Jr. were close is pretty cool. Yeah, definitely. Park Street Jr. also supported Earl's organization, the Court of Last Resort, which helped people who were wrongly convicted or couldn't get a fair trial. That's awesome. And Earl also visited Park Street Jr. in San Antonio regularly and stayed at the mansion. Mm. Park Jr. wasn't nearly as famous, but he was prominent locally and he served as the president of the Bar Association of San Antonio. He sounds pretty impressive. Definitely. So the family's life at the property seemed mostly peaceful, though I did find one article from 1956 that made me laugh, though it could have been way worse. It says, a San Antonio grandfather's efforts to teach his five-year-old grandson how to fire a 22 firearm backfired on him Saturday. The boy, Park Street III, son of a local attorney, accidentally shot his grandfather, J.Y. Holbrook, <laughs> in the upper left arm. Holbrook was noted in satisfactory condition at Nick's Hospital. Oh, shit. <laughs> Also, Holbrook was not Park Street III's grandpa, but his great uncle. Yeah, I was going to ask. That didn't sound right. Okay. Yeah. And just going to give a quick shout out that throughout the 1950s, there were more drownings near the property. Mm. And speaking of the surrounding area, by 1959, the neighborhood was changing. I found a suit from 59 from the Woodses, Holbrooks, and Street Crew against the state of Texas. They didn't want the city to turn the county gravel WW White Road into a controlled public access street. And they're not going to fuck with Park Street Jr. because he's a prominent lawyer. Well, they did. They (laughs) fucked around and they found out that they could. The city wanted it to be like an expressway. And obviously the family was like, that's going to depreciate the property value. And they weren't wrong, but they did lose. And that sucks. But they had one win. The same year, John Holbrook petitioned to change the name from W.W. White to Holbrook Road to honor his wife, Catherine, who had passed away 10 years earlier. But why not use her maiden name instead of his own mm. last name? I think that'd be one too many Jolines, especially since her niece's last name is Street. All right, but Catherine Drive? I know, I know. Uh. That is when the house got its current address. And tragically, later in 1959, at the age of 47, Jolene Woods Street passed away at Nick's Hospital. <sighs> That's really sad. I know. And her daughter, Jingles, was 19, and her son, Park Street III, was only eight. She'd been diagnosed with breast cancer less than a year prior. And according to the obituary, her funeral was held at the family home on Holbrook Road, a.k.a. the inn. Oh, wow. And then the following year, John Holbrook died. At that point, Blanche changed the deed to go to Jolene's daughter, her granddaughter, Jingles. But Blanche continued living in the home with her son-in-law, Park Street Jr. and Park Street III. So Jingles was not living there anymore. No, she married a very handsome young man named Jim Patrick Robinson the year after her mom died when she was 20. Hmm. And Jim and Jingles relocated to the Midwest with their two little kids named Jimmy and Jingles number two. You're lying. (gasps) I'm not. In the meantime, 
I'm sure both Park Street Jr. and the third, only nine years old, were struggling big time. And it definitely seems Mm. like Jolene's death impacted Jr.'s ability to function. According to a few newspapers, he failed to show up at a court date for an important closing argument. So it ended in a mistrial. There were a few instances like this. Of course, I can't say that it was all related to the loss of his wife, but one way or another, I picked up on something going on with him. Yeah, that's really terrible because he was so successful. Right. It wasn't just like selfishly successful, making a lot of money. He was doing work for the community. Right. And apart from those situations, Park Jr. still appeared to lead a pretty normal life. In 1961, he donated some of the land on the Holbrook property to be used as a Little League baseball field. And he and Blanche sold a lot of acreage to East Trail Hills, Inc., which is when all the houses surrounding the inn were built and where the neighborhood got its official name. Hmm. There's even a little street in East Trail Hills called Hull Park Drive. Hmm. Okay. Which, why didn't they name it street? Get it? (gasps) Maybe it was money-driven, but I'm not sure why they wanted to turn their countryside land into track home suburbia. If the land was haunted and they were like everybody else who wanted to get the hell out of Dodge. Yeah, I know. I guess it makes sense to sell it, though, if the property belonged to his wife's family and she had passed. And maybe he just didn't want to be there anymore because it reminded him of her. Yeah. And not to mention there were also significant issues with the creek overflowing at this point. Every time it stormed, there was major flood damage and issues like getting stuck there if it didn't drain quickly. Also, snakes seek higher ground in (gasps) floods. So I bet there were some of those there. Hell no. I don't know if Park Street Jr. was having financial troubles or the ranch was simply too much to upkeep, but one thing certainly played a role in him leaving the house while Blanche and Park Street III stayed. He remarried and moved with his new wife, Genevieve Cotton Munson. Hmm. And honestly, it was the hardest thing to research when this all went down because his second marriage isn't mentioned anywhere on the website nor in any of the sentences. After a while, I found her through social page mentions and local papers and put together that they started dating sometime in 1961, a little over a year after Jolene passed away. And Genevieve Hmm. was also a recent widow. Oh no. Her first husband also passed away in December of 1959 on the 26th, which was just four days after Jolene died. And it was in the same hospital. And he was 53 at the time. Mm. And the cause of death was liver cirrhosis with gastrointestinal hemorrhage, which is usually caused by alcoholism or poisoning. By 1964, Park Street Jr. and Genevieve were married and they shared a lease in a neighborhood away. So he definitely wasn't living at 1006 Holbrook anymore, but Blanche still was. And she was I'm guessing raising Park Street the third there. He was only 13 at the time. Wow. So young. And to be living in this big old home after your mom died, your yeah. grandpa figure died, your dad moved away, your sister's gone. He's just with mm-hmm. old Blanche. I know. It's sad. And she haunts the place. <laughs> Not yet. She's still a businesswoman. That's kind of cool because isn't she old at this point? Yeah, she was cool. And I don't think that his dad was completely absent because years later, Park Street III said on social media that his dad was a wonderful father. Okay, that's good. But I'm getting ahead of myself. In 1964, the year before he died, Park Street Jr. ran to be a county Democratic chairman, and he went on to challenge the legality of the vote count when he lost. And people who worked in the downtown building where his office was said he would only come in for a few hours a week in the months leading up to his death. Hmm. Okay. I also figured out that his and Genevieve's lease was expiring in June 1965. And then on July 22nd, 1965, Park Jr. was scolded by a judge in a case for making unwarranted personal attacks. And the award previously granted to his client was thrown out on appeals. That's not good. No. And either this is run-of-the-mill stuff 
and just life being life or together they were triggering events. But only two Mm. weeks later on a Friday in early August of 1965, 55-year-old Park Street Jr. died by suicide in his house that he'd only been in with his new wife for a little over a month. Okay. So that's just about a year after the remarrying. Right. Why remarry if he was already kind of upset? I don't know. I mean, there's obviously so much context that we're missing. I had to use all public records and and information, but he was suffering. And there's only one article aside from his obituary covering it. Well, what did the newspaper say? The article came out a few days after Park Street Jr.'s death, and it was published in the San Antonio Express. It described Park Street Jr. as unorthodox and successful with many a courtroom antic until recent psychiatric problems. Hmm. And it went on to report that he hanged himself with a belt around his neck from the side of his bedpost. Okay. The paper also wrote that his wife said he'd recently been to Galveston Hospital to undergo psychiatric tests and that the family was planning to send him back. She hmm. told police, I just didn't know how to tell him. And she added that when he got back, he would just sit around the bedroom and read books. Is this reminding you of Gustav? It's reminding me of Gustav. Yeah, it, I see the parallel a little, which is why I was interested in why that connection like hadn't been picked up on by any of the psychics. They sound like pretty different people, to be honest. <sighs> but it's sad to me that they were trying to get him help. And uh, I don't know. But now you can see that the lore about Park Street Jr.'s ghost kind of contradicts what really happened. I mean, his hands weren't tied behind his back and there wasn't any indication of foul play. Also considering that he was already remarried, I just find it a little odd that Park Street Jr.'s ghost haunts the house just searching for Jolene. I mean, I imagine her death really impacted him, so that's not shocking, but... Right. I don't know. I'm just like, why does it feel like they have a totally lost connection or something? They got married. They were together. Maybe because they died at different times and like yeah, they just can't maybe. seem to reach each other in whatever exists beyond. Did he feel like he betrayed her by getting remarried? Maybe he had some like guilt from all that. Oh. The claim about the treasure being buried under the house by him or making him the target of murder is also a bit odd to me. No one but TV mediums suspected murder over a treasure anyway. Mm -hmm. But the idea of treasures near Salado Creek did come up in an article in the San Antonio Press published in 1965, the year Hall Park Street Jr. died, though otherwise it's unrelated. Hmm. It talks about local legends about treasures buried along Salado Creek by the Spanish 300 years prior. Well, there you go. Also, remember the story I told you about someone getting bitten in the inner thigh while setting up for an event in 2015? Yes. So the website claims it was the ghost of a child, but I found something that made me wonder if it was a dog's spirit. Okay. In 1962, there was a newspaper story about a dog dubbed Big Red. Hmm who was described as a forlorn pooch abandoned on Loop 13, which was right outside the Holbrook property. Uh Uh-huh. And the dog lived there for two weeks, waiting for its owner to return, but never did. That's really sad. Mm Mm-hmm. Big Red would drink from the creek for survival, but eventually Mm -hmm. just disappeared. But couldn't that have been the entity biting someone and maybe moving their stuff to the woods? I mean, I'd rather it be a dog than a human entity, but... Yeah, it sounds feral if it's biting you. (laughs) Back to the family, though. After Park Street Jr. died, his son, Park III, lived with Blanche at 1006 Holbrook throughout his adolescence. By 1971, Jingles and Jim had moved back to San Antonio with their family, and Blanche wrote her will so that Jingles and Park Street III, who was in his mid-20s at that point, would split ownership of the property when she passed. Okay. A few years later, in 1976, Blanche passed away from a stroke in the Morningside Manor nursing home at the age of 88. 
though her address was still listed as 1006 Holbrook. Hmm. Rest in peace, Blanche. It's unclear if Blanche still owned it and who was living there when she died. But by 1977, Jingles and Park Street III sold it to another prominent San Antonio family, the Marins. Okay. And then they just moved away? Well, so Jingles lived with her family in a nice neighborhood before, sadly passing away in 2005 at the age of 65. So they still lived in San Antonio, but not at the house. And then Park Street III, he seems like he's still thriving and it's not there anymore, but his website bio for work used to say, I'm the son of a noted lawyer. Some of the fondest memories of my father were of us driving from one state prison to another where he interviewed prisoners. I grew up in what is now one of the most haunted houses in Texas. It was spooky, but not as spooky as it has been made out to be. Mm. It's interesting that he says the house is haunted and that it's spooky. Yeah. But mm. I wonder if he was maybe aware of some of the creepy things happening in the area at the time that he lived there in 1977, for example. So the year he sold the property to the Marins, a body was found in the creek. Another one? The body was in the water, fully clothed and wearing a seashell necklace with a gash on the right side mm. of his head. A few weeks later, they identified the victim as 23-year-old Robert Armstrong, and it turned out to be a fatal shooting. This is just so much gun violence happening here, but also is this mm-hmm. the spirit that oh. it makes you feel that sensation that you've been shot? Possibly. It seems like you're right. There's so many options of what that could be caused by. So, too many options. All right. Let's pick back up with the mansion in the 1980s when it actually got a new name yet again, the Holbrook Mansion, with the next owners, Ingberg and George Marin. And this section is actually the only one that doesn't have any ghost stories attached to it. And though Mm. George has passed away, Ingberg is still alive and well. Ingberg was born in the Czech Republic to Austrian parents who came to the U.S. as refugees. And after college at UT, she went to Europe to teach English for the State Department. She then founded an export company, which brought her back to Europe, where she imported Texas beef, the first to do so in Europe, Whoa, which is cool. And it became a multi-million dollar business. So she was a pioneer. Wow. A different kind of Texas pioneer. For real. Through the food import-export business, she met her husband, George, who was the U.S. Assistant Secretary of Agriculture, having served in that position during the Kennedy administration. So he was an impressive guy. And he helped establish the food stamp program, as well as food nutrition programs that are still in place today. Wow. Then they traveled the world together until moving to San Antonio in the early 1970s for his next job. Nice. The Marins were huge foodies. Ingberg hosted a big wine tasting festival and taught classes. Plus, she was a businesswoman. And that brings me to her plans for 1006 Holbrook. Hmm. I found an article from the year she purchased the property that seems like an attempt to get press for the project she envisioned. The 1977 article said it was 31 acres and that the Marins remodeled the primary residence enlarging the kitchen for dinner parties, conferences, and receptions. Wow. Ingberg hyped up the history of the property as the site of the 1842 battle, and she Mm. planned on maintaining the historic look of the grassy hill and farm, but would be turning it into a little village of galleries and shops called Holbrook Hill. That's interesting. So like a little upscale outdoor shopping experience. And the main residence, which was described as a 14-room colonial-style mansion, was going to be turned into an upscale restaurant. Ingberg planned to restore the then 100-year-old barn. Mm. So the plan was for the Holbrook Hill Village to open on September 18, 1977, on the 135th anniversary of the Salado Battle that freed San Antonio. And I couldn't figure out why they put the kibosh on the project, but that big renovation never happened. Even so, it was used for commercial purposes. 
1980, the Marins created an LLC and claimed other properties as their primary residences, so they never lived on site. Okay, that makes sense. Later in 1980, the LLC sold the home to another seemingly random German dude who was a ghost <laughs> online, I swear to God. It mm -hmm. took me forever to find him. Throughout the 80s, it was operating as a wedding venue and wine tasting festival venue under the name of Marin Mansion. So even though her dream of turning it into a bustling shopping center didn't come to fruition, it was still somewhat successful. And she was still involved in operating it, even though the German dude was the official owner. That's pretty cool. Eventually, in 1987, it was either sold by the German owner's lawyer or it was seized and went to auction. Hmm. It was hard to decipher which, but regardless, the next owner was a company called Sunbelt Storage. Then in 1991, Joanne Rivera bought it, named it Victoria's Box One Inn and moved in with her family. So they were the first family to live in it as a permanent residence for about 20 years. Wow. Okay. Interestingly, there weren't any reports, at least public ones, of any paranormal events until Joanne bought the property. She said in the Travel Channel episode featuring the inn that previous owners told her they were terrified of the house. And for Joanne, the hauntings started up the night she moved into the house in 1991. Here we go. I'm bracing myself. She woke up every night for over a week at exactly 3 a.m., she said her bedroom door would unlock, the hall light would turn on, and a man dressed in a white shirt and dark slacks would stand at the foot of the bed with his hands on his hips, just staring at her or gazing behind her. Mm. Who do we think it was? No clue, because his tank top's a different color from Gustav's <laughs> ghost. Ugh. Her daughter also repeatedly had visions of an elderly man who felt distinctly dangerous. He would stare at her through her second story bedroom window, which is totally inaccessible from the ground. Oh no. And it would always be on rainy nights. We got a floater. Some of the other kids also reported feeling and seeing the presence of a shadow man. Ugh. That's how they described it. And they told Joanne he would whisper to them while they slept and would sometimes <gasps> even pinch them. <sighs> Hell no. And despite being concerned, she continued operating the property as a wedding venue. And I think it was actually at a wedding there in the 90s where Joanne became friends with a paranormal investigator that could have sparked her foray into dark tourism. Huh. According to a 2021 article, a paranormal investigator named Don Lefebvre went to a wedding at Victoria's Black Swan Inn. He said, that night after the ghosts left, I went to the bathroom and saw a strange woman move into the room down the hallway. Not recognizing her, I went to go ask who she was, but there was no one there when I walked into the room. So he asked Joanne, who it could have been. Mm. Curious about the paranormal activity, they hired an investigative group to come by the house and the ghost stuff has just been a huge part of the inn's business ever since. Wow. Today, she partners with the Scientific Paranormal Investigative Research Institute of Texas. You can book an investigation yourself. It's $75 a person. And Joanne hosts events called Slumber Not Parties between 9 p.m. and 8 a.m. if you want to do a nighttime paranormal investigation. Well, that sounds really fun. I like that name. I don't have the balls. I couldn't do it, but I support. And she also partners with two companies that come to the property for guided tours, Bad Wolf Ghost Tours and The Curious Twins. Mm. And she hosts ticketed outdoor movies on the lawn showing things like the Ghostbusters and the Ghost Adventures episode that featured the inn. That's really fun. During the summer, there are events pretty much every weekend. She hosts 1800s-themed balls and soldier reenactment-style events. Huh. Well, how can you spot a ghost among other people dressed in garb of the time, oh, you know? Joanne and some friends sell antiques and oddities out of the property, too. And a big section of the front of the property, that paved lot, is dedicated to a flea market that happens twice a month. 
Hmm, One of the antique shops is called Gifts from the Attic, and it's in a separate carriage house, which also has an attic and a basement. And the manager DM'd us some really creepy stories. And recently, she had about 10 people in the shop. And they asked if anything weird has ever happened. Being a skeptic herself, she joked that there's a pain in the ass spirit who always knocks (laughs) merchandise down. And at that moment, the door slammed shut and locked them inside the store. They could not get out, even with five of them tugging at the door for a while. So they left out of a secondary exit. I would be panicking. Yeah, me too. After the encounter, she then decided to have someone try to summon the spirit using a tool that picks up voices kind of like an EVP. And she has heard EVPs before, but has never been able to understand anything on them and didn't really buy into it. But this time, when she asked if someone had anything to say to her or if there was someone trying to tell her something, clear as day, she heard the name Luis. Mm. Then he started speaking in Spanish to her. And... Mm. He said he just wants respect and was buried somewhere under the foundation. But hear me out. Luis made me think of Louis Ripstein, Sebastian's Mm. nephew who died by suicide in the area. Mm. But we don't know where he's buried? No, and I don't think anyone knows about Louis Ripstein anyway, so they wouldn't have put that together. But maybe he did say Louis? I don't know. She said instead maybe Luis is one of the soldiers from the Battle of 1842, which is also totally possible. Yeah. And even though Joanne leans into the spookier side of things, she told my San Antonio that she and her family started doing nightly rituals right when they moved in, where they would set boundaries with the spirits under the guise that if you respect them, then they will respect you back. Yeah, smart. And apparently this proved successful and the hauntings did chill out, at least for a while. That's good. Okay. But they definitely didn't go away. And the weird stuff has continued to happen over the years. The most menacing entity she's come across was a... Here we go. ...teenage boy. And it was the only experience that genuinely made her afraid. And she told the story to my San Antonio. So here is what happened. Sometime in the early 2000s, Joanne was home alone, or she thought she was, Mm. making dinner for her family in the kitchen when she heard her dog bark wildly in the main ballroom slash living room. So she went to check on it when she saw a woman accompanied by a boy who looked to be about 10 years old standing there in the main room. She wasn't quite sure what was going on, but because she runs so many businesses out of the property, she wasn't immediately concerned. And she just told the woman they were closed. The woman said she was interested in learning more about the wedding package. So Joanne handed her some pamphlets. The woman thanked her and turned to leave, but the boy lingered behind. So Joanne Mm. let her know that the boy wasn't leaving, like, hey, don't forget your kid. Mm. But the woman simply shrugged and kept walking to leave, saying she didn't know him and that they had not come together. Oh, red flag. At that point, it was just Joanne, her dog, and this kid who was leaning against the door frame. Right off the bat, she thought something was wrong. I imagine him standing there precociously, head cocked, half akimbo, like with a hip popped, a knee bent, and one arm propped up against the door frame. And she said he looked almost like he walked out of a Renaissance painting, but I'm imagining a Huckleberry Finn type puffing on his pipe, except more sinister and a little less scruffily dressed. With his pants not all the way to his ankles, like where's the flood, like suspenders. Right, 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 right. Mm. Like he's not from now. And his body language was just too comfortable veering on cocky (gasps) for someone who wasn't in their own home. I also picture him in like sepia filter, like not (sighs) black and white, but not color either. I don't know if you got that as well. Somewhat faded. Yeah. So Joanne asked him his name and he said, Dimitri, to which she replied, oh, Dimitri is an interesting name. And he said, wow, you got it right the first time. Uh Joanne said that his tone was not right. He seemed like he was trying to speak sensually, like someone triple his age. And she even went as far as to describe him as trying to be seductive. (sighs) 
I like this is where I start to go over the edge. I can't. I because it's like okay, well, is he is he something older than this boy? Also, like because he's a young boy, like she has to kind of be polite in a way she wouldn't if an older man was in the house. But he's being weird and sexy. Oh my god! Okay, right. So she was frazzled and unsettled, trying to rush him out the door. And as she was doing so, she was also wondering what the hell he was doing inside her home. So she asked what brought him there. And Dimitri told her that he came up from by the creek. Oh. And that he liked to hang out down there because he found it peaceful. Again, clocking no. how precocious he was. And I'm also thinking that's definitely not the safest place for kids to hang out, considering all the stories we've heard so far today. No. Did something just drop in your... Did something drop? What, you, what the fuck are you I talking I just like, heard me? like a loud bang sound. I didn't hear anything. I did. I didn't hear anything. I'm scared. Anyway, Dimitri continued to linger. So she asked if she could help him by calling his parents or anyone who would pick him up. And he said they did not have a phone. Mm. Again, in this almost flirtatious way. Ew. But Joanne was relieved when he finally did leave and she could move on with her evening. But the whole interaction just gave her a pit in her stomach. I'll imagine. It does not feel over. It's not. So after finishing cooking and feeding the family, they went about their nighttime routine and she was getting her kids ready for bed when she heard her dog barking aggressively again. And this was out of character for the dog. This time it was coming from the back porch and the pit in her stomach came back. And you know the dog knows too. Yeah. And she told her kids to stay there while she went to check out what was going on downstairs. At that point, it was dark out a little after twilight and her dog had gone from barking to softly whimpering. (sighs) Other than that, it was just eerily quiet. You could hear like the crickets and the leaves in the wind. Before she went out the back porch, she grabbed a butcher knife from the kitchen just in case. Good. And guess who was there? Uh, uh, Do I want to know? I know. It's him. She saw Dimitri in the distance, leaning against the side of the old dairy barn, allegedly the most haunted building on the property. Even the paranormal investigators don't like going in there. They always felt like something really possessive was staring at them and screaming at them to get out. So that's, of course, where he decided to go. And he was in a similar stance, similar to the one he'd been in, leaning against the doorway in the main ballroom earlier. He was so at ease, which instantly made her uneasy. Mm. He was trying to blend in, but once he realized that Joanne spotted him, he rested further into his laid-back position and then flashed her a smirk that grew into a full-on grin. Uh. You know, at night when it's dark, maybe you're at a campfire or something, and someone smiles, and all you can see teeth. It's like every monster in every movie just has like a mouthful of oh. horrifying teeth or like that movie Smile. God, I hope there was a big moon that night. I can't. And then think about like the little thing biting people, how that's happened. Anyway, she immediately pegged him as dangerous and she shouted at him to leave her property. It creeps me out because even if this is not like a demon entity or anything and it's just a little boy, there are killer kids out there. No kidding. Anyway, he didn't listen. He was just staring and smiling, and instead of charging at the kid with the knife, she went inside, locked the door, and called the police. Once they got there, Dimitri was, of course, nowhere to be found. And she told the officers what happened and his name, and they responded, Dimitri, what is he, a demon? (laughs) Which, literally? Great, you're (laughs) helpful. So the next day, she and her kids went to Fuddruckers, a local burger place, I guess, and at the next booth over, a mom was writing Dimitri over and over. (gasps) on the paper with her daughter's crayons. And Joanne was like just totally rattled and she never forgot that experience, but they never did see him again. It's been a minute since I read Mm. this story. It's just as bad as the first time. 
First things first, they never saw him again. Mm. He's not some residual haunting. Nothing about him besides the fact that he didn't fit with the time period. They didn't say he was, like, faded. They didn't say... No, no, no. It glitched. Nothing. So not knowing if he's a person or if he's, like, an entity, something spectral, whatever. Mm. Yeah. Disturbs me to my core. What is it called? A child familiar? When, like, a spirit takes another form? I feel like... It's not a person. It just doesn't add up. I feel like I've researched a lot of serial killers and there's a few like child killers out there that this reminds me of. And we know like those 13-year-old boys running the farm were prepared to defend it. (laughs) So who knows? The other thing I wonder to me when he says, oh, I'm just down by the creek. I like to hang out there all the time. It sounds to me like he's asserting his dominance. Like I run this area, not you. What if it's something that's like a dark entity that is capturing souls in the creek. Like, he is the creek okay. monster. I don't know. Maybe. Oh, my God. He's the creek monster. We need to be screenplay writers. <laughs> what was his goal is what I want to know. Literally, like, if you don't come back, what were you doing? It's like the robber again with the cigarettes, remember? Of course, he was standing by the old barn, probably with his peeps, <laughs> you know, gathering the spirits. I just don't like it at all. Right. But according to a paranormal investigator and writer named Selena Summers, maybe the creepy going-ons is not actually ghosts of previous tenants at all, but actually the energy that people treading through the house practicing dangerously have been bringing in. And I'm just going to read you Selena's direct quote. If you're part of an investigation team that doesn't perform a legitimate historical research on a property, your team can be sent blindly into a dangerous paranormal event without the proper preparation or protection and accidentally summon up an entity to interact with you, making it more dangerous for investigators, paranormal tourists, and residents alike. So I guess she's saying that People can bring their own ghostly attachments or they could summon up spirits without actually knowing who they are. Yeah. And the host of the Travel Channel episode also mentioned that having so many paranormal investigators and mediums there has made it more dangerous. But Selena then went on to say that after visiting the property, she thinks some of the hauntings are being caused by an anchor item, not a ghost. And said anchor item is a possessed doll. Oh, come on. I mean, I guess we should have seen that coming, but... (laughs) Right. But this theory seems kind of realistic to me, considering that Joanne does collect antique tchotchkes and there are so many dolls throughout the house dressed up in frilly, like old lace, but some are covered in thick spider webs and dust. So here's what Selena said about the doll. The investigation led the team to a doll as the apex of the haunting. Joanne stated in an interview that someone goes into that room every couple of weeks to talk to the dolls. That's a conjuration and maybe the entire reason the inn has any intelligent haunting at all chances are correspondingly greater that this is a dark or demonic entity lured in under the guise of sweet little Sophie and may have taken up residence in the doll. Annabelle, anyone? Oh, no. Yeah. Quick note, when she says sweet little Sophie, she means Mahler, which is who the website claims is the little girl ghost. But again, what if it was Dimitri presented as a little boy or just somebody else? It all comes back to Dimitri. I really don't think it was human. I just don't. I don't at all. I think it's something dark. Well, last comment on Dimitri, I have to entertain the option of him being an intruder. Mm. Hear me out. Full circle to the beginning of the episode, even though it's called an inn and hosts public events, the property is closed generally to the public and it only runs tours through separate companies. It's not like a nine to five museum. Right. And that might be confusing or not totally obvious to people who want to come check it out because they've heard the stories online or because they think it's open regularly. So all this is to say, 
there have been instances of intruders. For example, one guy broke in in the 20 teens and he walked into the house, stole a bottle of wine from the fridge, Damn. and then wandered into Joanne's bedroom. Shit. I hate that. She chased him out. It was in the middle of the day, but she was taking a nap or something. And luckily, things didn't escalate. Well, that's good. But it's a huge house and there are so many points of entry. Yeah. It reminds me of what we talked about with Holiday House, too. Oh, true. Hmm. But to end on a somewhat light and at least more cerebral, less creepy note, Joanne said that she named the inn after Shakespeare's favorite pub of the same name. And I couldn't find any link to him, but there is a Victoria's Black Swan Inn pub dating back to the Middle Ages in England, and it's allegedly crawling with ghosts too. So Shakespeare or not, I think it's just a fascinating name, especially in the context of the Black Swan theory. Have you heard of that? I haven't, no. Well, it's a theory that when freak events that aren't predicted or predictable occur and they have a negative outcome, people overreact with hindsight by overrationalizing them to make life slash the universe seem less random and scary. It was coined in the 2000s, but it comes from an ancient Latin phrase that presumed black swans did not exist. I see it as a metaphor for how fragile any system of thought is and how one experience can make everything we know is true unravel in an instant, which I think is very fitting for all the ghost stories we tell, but especially the Dimitri one. Cue my existential anxiety. Thanks a lot. <laughs> sorry. And this is where I leave you. Don't leave me alone with Dimitri, please. <laughs> I'm sorry. I hope it was at least entertaining. That's one of my favorite stories I've heard of. This property is rich in history. So I learned a lot about Texas history that I didn't know before. Good. Thank you for diving into this one. I feel really bad that you we're like alone reading all these stories and figuring out all these street names, but I appreciate it. I'm sure everybody listening did. Not to bring us back to the haunted dolls, but the Annabelle mention made me think of Ed and Lorraine Warren. Yeah. And the real Annabelle doll is actually a big Raggedy Ann doll. And the Warrens have her in a glass and wooden box in their occult museum in Connecticut. Oh, I have to go. We have to go. But anyways... Next week, we are finally digging into the most infamous case the Warrens have been associated with over the years. So everybody get excited to hear all about the Amityville Horror next week. <laughs> Little applause. It's about damn time. Yeah. And on that note, thank you for listening to today's episode on San Antonio's most haunted house, maybe the country's most haunted house. So reach out to the website if you're interested in booking it as a venue for the haunted or cursed wedding of your dreams. <laughs> Charles. Oh my God. And please leave us a five-star review wherever you listen. We hope you enjoyed this episode and we'll see you next week. <laughs>